missed the shows no worries we got you covered on our podcast on point tonight why are the liberals blocking health committee which is looking into their handling of COVID 19 and well it won't lead to a confidence vote but they certainly don't want it out how does a four-day work week look well it can be done but the feds have to get their spending under control and balance the books We'll also dive into a new study that supports the idea of a better work-life balance, but it shows a huge number of people in this country are absolutely fed up and ready to walk out the exit door, regardless if they have a job or not. And as a business owner fights for his life, we will talk about how he's creating this Sunset Beach experience to get him and his clients through the winter. We'll talk about that. Mr. Trudeau is playing a game with people's lives in the middle of a pandemic to avoid answering some reasonable, reasonable connect questions about connected liberal insiders. We will do our job to bring up rapid testing, to bring up a better supply of PPE, better response to the pandemic. Uh, it is quite sad that he'll he'll roll the dice with lives in order to to save his political power. Well, it looks like they're not going to bring down the government over this, but it is very clear the Liberals don't want anyone looking into their handling of the pandemic either. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, October 22nd. Hope you're having a great day as we head into a second day of dodge and weave. And thankfully, in the end so far, it looks like that uh, we're not going to be running into an election. But this issue will be voted on Monday. And what I am talking about is a motion tabled by the Conservatives today, which will look into a host of health issues, including the Trudeau government's response to COVID-19. What's been uh, done right, what has been done wrong, and what needs to be corrected moving forward. And of course, the Liberals are again crying foul because apparently this will paralyze them from doing their job of focusing on Canadians. That's their new talking point, focus on Canadians, because apparently they can't do more than one job at a time. But this motion was tabled today because the Liberals paralyzed a health committee that had been underway for weeks. And what they did is, well, they stalled it, they filibustered it, they ragged the puck, just like they did with the you know, finance committee for spending. And that's because, well, they don't, you know, just like spending, they don't want anybody looking into their health record. And health critic Michelle Rempel Garner said today, you know, they don't want to be questioned on things that are very questionable. The health committee has been obstructed by the Liberals for almost two weeks on this question after nearly two months of prorogation. The other opposition parties indicated their support for this motion when it was raised at committee. We just want to get down to work. This is about finding out what's going on what's working, what's not, and charting a very transparent and hopeful path forward for Canadians so that they can be healthy, that they can get back to work, and that they can reunite with their loved ones. This is not a partisan issue, and it's also not unreasonable to ask these questions. I mean, it is the job of the opposition to, to, to do that, to ask them. And so the Liberals are complaining that it goes too far, uh, they're also arguing it's unfair to make the public servants go and collect documents, which I said, what? 
And then, of course, went back to the talking point that it's going to stop them from focusing on Canadians, which, of course, if true, then they have no business running this country. It's also not true that they focus on Canadians because they shut down Parliament for five weeks. So these excuses are not just laughable. They are actually insulting. I mean, to suggest that this government can't do their work and take part in committees that are a very common part of the job when you're in government is utter nonsense. So it comes back to this never-ending question, like, what are they hiding? Well, I can think of a few things. I can think of a whole bunch of inconvenient truths they'd rather ignore. I mean, Trudeau likely wouldn't want to talk about why they shut down the pandemic warning system in 2019, or why they ignored warnings from their own scientists back in December, warning that the virus was dangerous and it was coming. And instead, they just kept uh, telling us for months, hey, this is low risk and we're prepared. So I'm certain that they don't want to talk about why we weren't prepared, why they gave away 16 tons of protection to China while China was lying to the world about the virus and had bought up the world's supply. And I'm also sure they don't want to explain why no one bothered to check to see if we actually had supplies, because had they done that, then they would know it had all been tossed into a landfill. I mean, why would they want to talk about that? I'm also sure they don't want to have to explain why they waited until mid-September to order rapid testing they promised way back in March, or why borders to hot zones have never been shut down and still are not shut down, or why screening at airports has been utterly pathetic. So th those are just off the top of my head of a few reasons why maybe the Trudeau government does not want the health committee digging into their response or lack thereof. I mean, because why spoil the narrative that's given Justin Trudeau such unbelievable praise, you know, and big numbers in, in polling? Because as long as he's seen as the guy who's got our backs and he's seen as the hero that gives out bags of money, then he can be seen as doing a very good job by uninformed voters. But it is when you start to scratch under the surface or when you actually just pay attention, that you find there are several big chinks threatening his armor. And so, as you know, Aaron O'Toole said a number of times today, if he can stop it, he will. The Trudeau government is playing a lot of games. Uh, they've delayed Parliament, prorogued Parliament. There's been resignations, delays, all for us asking some reasonable questions about rapid tests. When we asked those questions, when Ms. Rempel-Gardner asked those questions, the government finally moved. Canadians want the Health Committee to study the most important health crisis feature, uh, facing our country. We have some reasonable questions. It's the government that's not being reasonable. They're being downright foolish. And, uh, you know, we'll see on Monday, I guess, if this turns into a confidence vote. It doesn't look like it, but you never know. But it is very clear, you know, the government's not exactly confident how the truth of their response will play. But, you know, this is a guy who promised to do politics different. You know, he didn't want to be like Stephen Harper. But, man, does he have Stephen Harper beat by long shot. Uh, busy show. I wanted to make sure that we mention this because today marks an anniversary. And it is one I think we absolutely should remember, especially in times when we uh, are distracted by all things. But, you know, it was uh, six years ago. Today, when Corporal Nathan Cirillo of Hamilton was murdered as he stood guard at the country's tomb of the unknown soldier, and he was remembered today. Here's Rick Zamperin. 
It was six years ago today that Corporal Nathan Cirillo was shot and killed by a gunman while serving as an honor guard at the National War Memorial in Ottawa. The 24-year-old was a member of Hamilton's Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. The gunman was shot and killed inside the center block of Parliament. Later, the RCMP classified the 2014 ordeal as a terrorist act under the criminal code. A number of influential organizations and figures are reflecting on today's anniversary. Liberal MP and former Hamilton Mayor Bob Rettina wrote in a social media post, quote, we will forever be grateful for his service and sacrifice. On Facebook, the Police Association of Ontario writes, quote, we remember and honor him and also thank the first responders who kept others inside Parliament Hill safe that day. In a tweet, the Argyle said six years ago, our regimental family suffered a shocking blow. We reflect and remember that while tragedies hurt, our collective strength in the face of adversity is what define us. Rick Samprin, Global News. And of course, uh, you know, he was just a young guy starting out on life and uh, obviously taken way too soon. And, and we can't forget also uh, Warrant Officer Patrice Vesson. He was killed a couple of days earlier in another terror attack. But yeah, 2014, this, uh, these, these two terror attacks happened six years ago when our nation was attacked by a terrorist. And uh, we can't forget those. The motion in front of Parliament today is nonpartisan in language. It asks questions that are at the heart of one of the biggest, it is the biggest public policy challenge that Canada is facing right now, which is how do we provide a sustainable, common sense a- approach to moving forward with the pandemic? That is uh, Michelle Rampel Garner, Shadow Minister of Health, and um, she is the opposition, and it is her job to hold the government to account. And it's not just on finances that the Trudeau government is refusing any scrutiny. But a health committee set up to look into this, into the government's handling of this pandemic and the plans to move forward has been obstructed with games and delays for a week. And so today, the Conservatives use their second opposition day to table a motion that will push for a sweeping health committee hearing to ask these questions. And yeah, it has the support of the NDP and Bloc. And even though the Liberals have made clear they will take their pails and leave the sandbox, they're not going to plan to topple the government when it comes time to vote on this mon- motion on Monday. The min- uh, Michelle Rempel Garner is uh, joining me now. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. You'll always be health critic to me. I just it rolls off the tongue a little bit better, but nonetheless, <laughs> good to have you. It's been a, a very busy couple of days, uh, your, you know, for your party. The motion that you put forward today, uh, really essentially, as I understand it, because I've been watching the shenanigans for the last month, is because the Liberals would not allow this kind of work to be done on the committee, correct? Correct. Uh, we put forward this motion over uh, about two weeks ago now, and I had the support of the NDP and the Bloc and the uh, Liberals um, just drag their feet on it. And so that's two weeks we wasted after Parliament being prorogued, it was very frustrating, so we put it forward in the House today, and that means that the House will direct committee in this matter, which is so important, Alex. Like, come on, <laughs> the Health Committee should be studying the response to the pandemic. So uh, I'm excited that we got some movement with the help of the other opposition parties today. 
But much like what we saw with the Finance Committee, there, there's clearly, you know, this something that they don't want scrutinized. And I can understand I listed off a whole number of, of factors, you know, uh, the fact that they ignored their scientists back in December about this. They shut down the pandemic warning. You know, they didn't know about supplies. They gave supplies away. There's a whole list of things that I can understand why they would not want scrutiny. But, you know, they're using words in their new talking points are that they can't possibly do these committees because it'll paralyze them from focusing on Canadians. But again, these are just talking points and they don't simply add up. What is it that you are trying uh, and they think the opposition are trying to get out? Well, um, Canadians have paid hundreds of billions of dollars um, in tax dollars and we've gone into debt in the last several months to fund Trudeau's uh, response to COVID-19. I think that every Canadian, regardless of political stripes, deserves answers on whether or not that was well spent. So as it relates to the pandemic, specifically on the health file, things like where are Canada's rapid tests? Why don't we have them? Like Ontario, I think, bought like 100,000 today or something. That's like three days worth for Toronto, right? Because laughable. Mm-hmm. Why are we so behind? What's, what's the plan with the vaccine? Uh, there's a billion dollars worth of personal protective equipment that we don't know where it is. Like, those are the answers that we should be getting so that we understand if something's not working, that we make changes because people are tired of being isolated. They're tired of economic lockdown. They're tired of no path forward. And it's the health committee in a pandemic. This is totally reasonable. Um, and, you know, the last thing I'll say is this. They're saying that, the, that we're trying to paralyze government. What? Like, I mean, they just they just shut down Parliament for months. They, they've been filibustering our committees. It's just preposterous. And I just, enough. We've got to move forward. We've got to be allowed to do our job so that everybody can see a path forward through COVID. Well, had they, you know, just simply not played games through not just the committee hearing, but the health, um, you know, committee, uh, we, a lot of the work could probably be done by now, but the question, you know, the, the, the reality is they don't want that, but what they could learn or what you could learn through the health committee, I think could be just as damaging uh, as the finance committee, unless there is such a, a cover up with the, the finance stuff that it would blow it out of the water, but there's still a lot of damaging um, stuff that I think exposes Mr. Trudeau, um, you know, to maybe not handling this thing so well that that you know while his polling is high because everyone sees him as well he's done a good job i think the health committee threatens to put a lot of chinks in that armor so why is it that they would use a confidence vote on yesterday's motion but not this one is it that they can't play that trick twice i i don't know honestly for me this is i'm thinking about um, a friend in montreal who called me late last night and her mother passed away due to COVID-19. They, her and her father had been isolating, but the person who was caring for them um, didn't have access to testing, rapid testing, was infected, didn't know about it, infected them, and they passed away, separated in different hospitals, and now her father can't have to stall with the family. And I have to wonder, like, if, if Parliament had been able to do our job, if we had been able to ask about rapid testing, Getting that stuff sooner, like like it's that human story that I'm that I care about right now. Like all these games that Trudeau's playing, like like enough, and that's what this motion is designed to do. It's just like we need answers, we need to be able to do our job and scrutinize decisions. 
and then we need to chart a better path forward. And that is that is the job. That's why that's why Canadians pay our tax our, our salaries as parliamentarians to do that very thing. And um, you know, it's unfortunate it had to, it's had to be such a fight to to get to this point. But um, we're not going to back down. I'm not going to back down because Canadians deserve better. And I hope we can just get to work. This motion passes on Monday, and that committee can just get down to business right away. Well, key to these committees um, is that, you know, uh, the Liberals don't have more numbers on these boards than than they did, uh, let's say, when they majority government, where they were able to shut these things down. Um, but the new trick they're using is by filibustering and by playing all sorts of games to make sure that that information is uh, or, or these hearings are, are shut down. If, in fact, the vote goes through, the committee gets back to work. How soon do you think we will start getting answers or does this become another issue of stalling? Um, I mean, I, there were comments today. By by Patty Haidu in the House, uh, saying that uh, you know she doesn't worry about freedom of information requests. She's not looking into them. Uh, you know, the, another Liberal MP made it clear that the clerks just don't have time to be looking for these documents or public servants. I mean, the, the things that are their jobs. So, how much will we get out of these committees, and how quickly? This motion is pretty watertight when it comes to compelling. Um, documents this information and directing the committee on how it needs to proceed. Uh, the Liberals are going to have a really hard time, I, I, like I mean, a hard time justifying to Canadians why they would drag their feet on this stuff. I am uh, optimistic because both the NDP and the Bloc Québécois have said that they would support the motion publicly today if this is going to pass on Monday. And then I'm going to be, I know all of us are going to be turning our attention to getting ready for that study um, as well as getting ready to sift through those documents when they come through. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, I mean, headline today, uh, a major Canadian newspaper providing Canadians with information, not Ottawa's priority, says health minister. Like, this was a response that she had in question period. But it's going to be really up to Canadians to say if they have confidence in this government. So I'm just going to do my job, focus on reviewing this information and providing recommendations on a path forward. And that's what I think Canadians expect us to do. All right. Well, we'll see what Monday brings and um, may want to order your signs ahead of time, but because uh, we could go at any time. It's obvious about that. But uh, we'll see what um, what happens in the coming days. I appreciate your time on this. Thanks so much for having me. That is uh, Michelle Rimple Garner. Uh, and look, this is how it works or it's supposed to work. And the fact that these guys are saying, oh, well, we can't do a committee because it'll paralyze us from work. Well, then get out of Ottawa. You know, we all multitask. And if you can't multitask and do more than one job, then you have no business serving this country. This is very normal. This happens in every government. This is not special for the Trudeau government. But it is very clear that they don't want things getting out. And I gave you my reason earlier as to why I don't think he wants the health committee to be studied, because God knows he wants to go into an election with these high polling numbers and with everyone thinking he's done such a good job. And I think what a health committee will reveal is that not only did they not do a good job, they didn't do their job at all especially in those very early days when the sirens were blaring and people were warning, this is coming. And all we got was, it's low risk and we're prepared. And you know what? We weren't. And I would certainly like to know if we are now, because we still don't have enough rapid testing. And these vaccines that were bought very late don't even know when they're coming. So there's still lots of questions to ask. And the opposition has the right to ask them. So we'll wait and see what that vote tells us on Monday.
we're number one. But uh, yeah, no, this is not a list we actually want to top. Uh, according to the International Monetary Fund, they've released their latest fiscal report. And all countries are actually predicting much bigger deficits, which is no surprise. Canada is running the largest deficit of all countries. And our spending's not slowing down at all. The plan is actually to spend more than at any time in our country's history, including both world wars. And sure, it's one thing to take on big spending in crisis, but why are we running much bigger deficits in spending more than any other country in the world? And that's probably because we have a government that spent a lot of money on students, more so than it did supporting things like the resource sector or small businesses. And because we've had to extend things like CERB, which was, yes, wildly successful, but also wildly abused, it does start to add up. And if we don't put the country's finances on a diet, we're going to spend ourselves into a big old fat mess. Professor Jack Mintz is with the University of Calgary. He's also written a study for Fraser on this. And right now, Professor, you know, we are actually drowning in debt. And obviously, uh, the deficits are growing day by day. And when you're in the middle of a crisis, it's very hard to rein in the spending. But at some point, if the government of the day doesn't actually get this thing in check, we're uh, we're never going to reap any rewards. And we're just going to continue to work really, really hard for very little. No, I think I think that's true. And uh Really, the point is, is that when governments become more and more highly indebted, um, first of all, that could put some real risks on uh, in terms of much higher interest rates or devaluation of, of, uh, of a currency could even create a, a, a crisis if uh, things get really out of hand. And I've worked with some countries in the past where that's happened, and including uh, being in Department of Finance when uh, just after uh, Paul Martin finally uh, pulled the reins in and and, and dealt with a very serious problem that Canada had at that time. And so uh, these things really do matter, um, and confidence matters. And really one of the problems right now is that, you know, as we keep on adding on more and more debt and also unfunded liabilities, uh, international investors, including domestic investors in Canada, get more nervous uh, about uh, Canada and are not willing to make investments because either they're going to be uh, whacked with uh, a lot of future taxes, or, or they're very worried about losing money if there's a significant devaluation of the of the currency. So, those, those things really uh, matter a lot, and and for that reason, I argue that really what government should be doing is putting in what I call a statutory rule, mm-hmm. in other words, a legislated fiscal rule, either constraining their expenditure, constraining debt, constraining. Uh, we're moving towards a balanced budget. Um, you know, those are the three most typical ones uh, that have been adopted around the world in quite a few countries, by the way. Um, but uh, they've, um, but certainly, uh, making a real commitment matters. And Canada has never done that at the federal level. They've never actually adopted a fiscal anchor uh, that they've actually been committed to by legislation. It's always been more, you know, the Ministry of Finance getting up and saying, oh, "We're going to." try to balance the budget. And that's my objective. And that's my fiscal anchor. Right. And you also point that if maybe there were a penalty for those in charge, you know, not meeting their uh, fiscal targets, maybe they would actually be more motivated to hit the actual targets, which I think, you know, if you're working in the private sector, that happens all the time. If you work uh, and meet this target, you get a bonus. If not, you don't get the bonus. But, you know, we have a government right now um, that doesn't see deficits as a problem. They like to spend. They've uh, put a throne speech, albeit it is just, uh, you know, words on a paper right now. But they indicate that 
you know, they plan to spend big, overhaul and remake this country. And for now, Mr. Trudeau is riding high in the polls because he's been seen as the guy giving out all the money. That makes him very popular. So it won't be popular if all of a sudden uh, people have to kind of see the reality of the situation. And, and it does concern me is that people don't seem to see the train coming down the tracks at about a billion miles an hour. Well, and eventually that that can happen. I mean, we have to remember 81 and 82, 1981 and 82, uh, when mm-hmm. I was starting off as an economist, actually, at that point, uh, there was a, you know, there was a very significant and very deep recession uh, that took place at that, that year, uh, time. I remember and it very was, well. Uh, Canada's deficits just grew out of whack. Uh, and what happened in 1984, uh, uh, the opposition finally got elected uh, under Mulroney. And uh, and and I think if there was one mistake Mulroney made, he had, he was a good prime minister in many respects. But one big mistake he made is in the first term he didn't take the deficit seriously enough. And then of course when he hit a recession by the early '90s, uh, you know Canada's debt became so severe that all of a sudden we were having trouble selling our bonds to the international market, and we had to go to the I, we almost had to go to the IMF cap in hand. To get a bailout, which uh, actually forced the, um, uh, the government at that time, the Liberals, to say we really have to take this seriously, and hats to the hats off to Craig and Martin. They did, and they started putting Canada's finances on a much better track after that, uh, and which we saw for actually the next uh, twelve years until the financial crisis hit. But even then, because of what we did, we mm-hmm. were prepared for that financial crisis, and we were able to handle it. And if it wasn't for the good position that, um, you know, our finances were before the, you know, the COVID recession, um, it could have been really drastic. But now we're spending a lot of our, that room that we had and that financial uh, uh, prudence is, uh, and reputation and getting whittled down. And while we're okay right now, if we do, if we have long-term spending, huge amounts of spending, large deficits, uh, you, we'll see. We're going to end up having a very significant problem uh, and, and the repetition of the 1970s and early 80s uh, once again. And unlike, um, you know, the days of yesterday, uh, there was an economy to stimulate. There was, uh, you know, resources that governments were interested in, in using and producing and, and um, you know, pushing. But we have a government that has no interest in resource development. We had a GDP that was very flat coming into this thing. It is a different scenario this time, is it not? Yeah, well, actually, I think, you know, if we're talking about trying to build back better, if we look at uh, the pre-COVID uh, period, you know, before coming up to February, we've had very little, uh, very poor productivity uh, growth between 2014 and and uh, up to 2020. Uh, it, it was uh, remarkably poor, uh, except for one year, but that was, it, other, but it, we actually, uh, it was pretty flatlined uh, during that period. Um, and our private investment uh, has, um, actually had gone down in just about every sector except for residential real estate. And, and so uh, our private, our investment uh, uh, performance was doing very poorly uh, going into 2020. So if we want to bring back better, we need to bring back private investment. And that's what this whole COVID recession is all about. It's, it's a supply shock. People were told not to work. People would stay at home. Mm. And, and we have to bring back not just jobs, but we have to bring back investment to create those jobs. And if you look at the speech from the throne, it was all about government spending to grow the economy. It was nothing about private sector performance. And I think uh, 
that is uh, the wrong, mind you, the wrong way of going. We we need to have a uh, an approach which is going to help build the private sector up and our productive capacity, uh, and and to do much better than what we've done. And and uh, and I think that means things like deregulation, tax reform, a whole bunch of different policies uh, that could uh, actually really help spur investment in the economy. Well, given uh, seven months later, we still don't have legislation to get businesses uh, the proper aid they need. It doesn't look like they uh, they see the need or the urgency of protecting small business. Um, Dr. Mensa, I appreciate you t- uh, joining us. We'll chat again. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Good to have you here with us on this busy Thursday. And uh, apparently a lot of Canadians are just fed up. They're tired and no longer want to take it. Like that twisted sister song, you know, and a big cause of this is what we've been through over the last six months. And that is a lot of long, stressful days full of chaos, uh, long hours at the office. And uh, of course, that used to be your home. And I can't say I'm surprised by this, but a study at Hayes Canada, which looked into the sentiments of business and the labor force, finds an alarmingly high number of us are looking at getting out. 49%. In fact, and that's not a small number. And the reason is because I think this pandemic has forced a lot of people to rethink their work-life balance. And a lot of people aren't feeling like they have any balance. And they feel there's just not enough support for things like wellness and mental health. Travis O'Rourke is president of Hayes Canada. He joins us now. Good to have you, Travis. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You conducted this study looking into the sentiments of business versus labor, and there's a very big disconnect when you look at the numbers between what employers are um, experiencing and how employers are, are seeing life. H- how how did it become such a disjointed uh, you know vision? Is it is it directly linked to COVID nineteen? I think it is. It's directly linked to COVID because we went through a window there where. Companies are just trying to survive. They're trying to keep their bottom line. They're trying to stop from going under. And that was suitable for about three months. Employees were just happy to be employed. I got my paycheck. I'm still working. My mortgage got paid. But as time has gone on and companies have returned to profitability, or at least most of them, employees are sitting here thinking, hang on a second. I'm working longer hours. I've got no work-life balance, and I'm not getting a raise. Something's not matching up here. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to poop all over the corporations because, you know, they're, they're, a lot of them have had uncertainty. They've also had to pivot. You know, the balance sheets aren't where they are. And frankly, if the corporations aren't around, there are no jobs at all. But when you take a look at this study, which I found was interesting, it, it, the employers employees feel pretty good about the economy. Um, the, you know, they feel like things have improved and I should say the employers feel this, but the employees are on a completely different page. And when you say, you know, people are fed up because they're working harder and not getting a raise, is there no feeling that, well, at least I am employed when they look at the job numbers? I think that there's there's still a lot of it there, but as you, you see job numbers come back, we're at 70, 75% of pre-pandemic levels. You're yeah. watching the stock market rocket in some cases to new heights. And you're seeing companies make lots of money. So something isn't matching up. And a lot of employees are having trouble making the connection. Right. And maybe that will come with time. But there's no question there's a burnout factor. I think what was seen in wave one, which was a lot of anxiety and unknowns, but it was kind of new and and there was somewhat of a novelty to it. 
you know, now that we're back in the grind of things, I think there has been this, oh my God, here we go again. And it's going to be a much longer grind. And I think for many people, um, COVID has made a lot of people pause and force them to think about life, where they want to be and the work-life balance. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And the challenge of work-life work balance right now is for so many people, the kitchen table and their office desk are now the same. And a work-life mm. balance has turned into a work-life blend. And you've got employers who aren't necessarily respecting those boundaries. Emails are coming in early. They're being expected to answer things late. And when you couple that with the fact that you're not seeing your friends, you're not seeing your family, you can't go to a concert, the things that you would traditionally attach to a positive work-life balance don't exist. So it's becoming a work-work. Well, yeah, because, you know, you just move from one room to the other and you pretty much kind of feel like you're working seven days a week. So what is the answer? Because corporations are trying to, um, you know, make things work for employees, but there's no perfect fix. And how do you, you know, find the balance in such unknown times? I think the the one employers need to set clear boundaries. They need to let expectations know just because I email you after hours, I don't need a response within 10, 10 minutes, wait till next morning. Um, but you can't lay the blame entirely at the feet of employers because mm-hmm. work-life balance depends on the employee as well. And you think about family, friends, mind, body, spirit, religion, hobbies, exercise, sport. There's so many things that your company can't take part in or direct you to do. You need to find new ways to get yourself energized. There is no substitute for organic human interaction. And employers need to take care of um, setting expectations, but it's on employees to keep themselves busy. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, I think while a lot of people are ready to exit out the door um, and maybe look for something new, I mean, we are heading into the worst of this thing. And at a time of year, um, you know, we're in a deep recession uh, and we're heading into winter. It's going to be very tough, I think, for, for the next few months. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, um, like, who knows if wave two is going to turn into wave three. Employers need to take some responsibility and start having some proactive conversations about their well-being, uh, about their staff's well-being. The data is telling. You cannot assume that this is not going on in your own organization. And you have a choice, whether to be proactive and talk to your staff about what's going on and how you can help, or you can get that same feedback in an exit interview as they're going next door to your competitor. Right. Assuming the competitors has any jobs uh, available, because I mean, no question, I think the job market uh, is going to get much tougher. uh, And the grass is not necessarily going to be any greener on the other side, because I was just actually speaking about another study where employers now have the, um, you know, the benefit that they don't have to hire uh, within a certain radius around the workplace. They can actually go across the country now and hire someone because they know that no longer are they constrained by borders because Zoom and all these other things have made it that they can go look for talent elsewhere? That's right. Yeah, you've got uh, a lot of employers taking this opportunity to right-size and upskill their workforce. Uh, the best employee for the job at one point was the best person to apply for a posting. Now who's the best person in the country? Um, it's completely opened up the playing field. 
It has. And so what would you be telling those, uh, you know, in this 49% uh, who are feeling, and I understand it. I mean, everyone is exhausted. Um, there's a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of demands, certainly if you're a parent, you've got kids. There's so many uh, variables here at play. So what's the advice you would then give uh, to someone who's feeling extremely like one foot out the door? I would say um, take a moment to pause and do some proper self-reflection. I think everybody is using this as an opportunity to reevaluate their priorities in life. Um, job postings are actually near their, their February, January levels, which was almost an all-time high. There's mm-hmm. a lot of roles to look at, and there's a lot of conversations that you, can, that you should have. Don't just jump because you're upset. If you're going to jump, jump for an opportunity that you're inspired by. Right. And, and inspiration at a time like this is not necessarily easy to find. And on, on the flip side for the employers, what are you uh, advising that they do? Again, I would say talk to your staff, recognize and understand that maybe half of your workforce is upset. Um, they don't feel that you've uh, managed their mental well-being. They don't feel that they're being rewarded or recognized for the extra hours or even the normal hours that they're putting into And I think you have a choice to proactively have those conversations now or be put on your back foot when 2021 comes around and maybe COVID's more under control and it becomes Mm. moving season for your staff. But there are a lot of, you know, we we are all working harder, but there has to be a management of expectations because given the economy and given the current uh, balance sheet of most companies, I mean, expecting your, uh, you know, annual, certainly in the private sector, your annual bump in uh, raise, it's not going to happen this year probably. No, and there's very few organizations, I think about 20% that are looking to do increases based on inflation. Uh, but yeah. starting a conversation now and letting your employer know that you think when the time is right and maybe it's a year from now that you deserve a raise because you're doing X, Y, and Z, there's nothing wrong with initiating that today. Just manage your own expectations and don't take a very hard line. Yeah, do the, hey, there's some good news. You got a job, but... Uh, there's no raise. Nonetheless, you got a good job. <laughs> there you right. go. Right. Travis, uh, interesting study. Uh, we'll keep watching these trends because uh, Lord knows they're going to be changing over the next few months. But I appreciate your insight into this. My pleasure. Have a nice evening. That is Travis Overwork with uh, Hayes Canada. Yeah. Manage your expectations. I mean, at this point, I'm just happy. I'm happy to have a job. It's like, I'm just happy to be nominated but I am. I'm happy to be employed. Look at the glass as half full right now. As the cold moves in, restaurants now face this creeping threat of losing that, you know, very small amount of outside business that has been letting them survive. And so either a lot of them are going to be shut down or they have to reinvent again. And one of the country's biggest club owners has been pivoting ever since this pandemic hit every which way in order to survive. And this time he's actually created this massive heated patio that's offering a Miami vibe of sunsets, pool bars and a waterfront patio. It's a whopping 5,400 square feet, but it will invite only 200 people who will be distance protected and be able to have some much needed fun and allow this business owner uh, a chance to actually survive. Charles Kabuth, you know him as the CEO of Inc. Entertainment. Good to have you, Charles. Nice to be there. Thank you. 
We talked to you a number of times and you um, have uh, talked openly about your challenges and concerns and and fears about this continuous uh, shutdown of the economy and certainly one that has hit your industry particularly hard. And you just keep pivoting because that's what kind of leaders do. Um, And and you've spent a fortune turning Cabana, which is down by uh, the old docks. So it's right behind, uh, I guess, off of Cherry Street. You've turned it into what is now called the Marquee. Um, and the hope is that you can somehow survive through the winter. Uh, correct. I mean, we've erected the stent, but it still has to be quite open from a couple of sides. So we're hoping, you know, for a decent warm weather. We have uh, we've put a lot of time and money and effort into heating it up and carpets, and we have um, a, a big local artist, um, you know, who's done uh, quite a bit of work to the ceiling of it so it's very you know so it feels like you're somewhere that is more than just a tent it's going to be candlelit we have an amazing menu and honestly we're hoping to keep as many staff as we have employed keep as many people in the city entertained and fed um, because we don't know when we will be able to open inside again it's been our biggest and my personal biggest uh, struggle is not knowing what the future is going to bring. We are living day to day. Yeah, and 200 people in that large facility, I'm sure the the rent on a place like that is astronomical, but it's not going to bring in a ton of money, but will it give you enough to be able to hold on to your staff and, and keep things going for a bit? I'm I'm hoping so. I mean, we did that in the summer. Uh, it was a wide open space, and we did manage to serve about eight or nine thousand people a week between lunch and dinner. This will be five nights a week, and we're really hoping that we can at least pay some of our rent, um, keep as many staff employed as possible. It's so difficult to keep hiring and firing and not firing, but laying off people over and over again. It's it's heart wrenching. It's you know, it's just not healthy for the company, for the city, for the economy. So we're trying to bridge, you know, uh, between shutting down and reopening and shutting down, reopening. It's very tough for our industry to let people go and then bring them back. You know, it's it takes a lot of training, a lot of prep. It's it's not like retail where you just yeah. open and close a store. It's very difficult. Well, right, because the last shutdown was so sudden that, and I thought about you first because I thought, oh my God, a guy like Charles Caboose probably spent millions of dollars filling his restaurants with high-end food that all went to waste. And that was a big mistake that they made was not thinking about all this stuff that would have had to been bring in for the weekend servings. All of that comes out of these restaurant owners, uh, you know, pockets, and, and then it's lost. We're halfway now through this 28 days and, and God help us if there's another extension, but can you get through this? And uh, if there is an extension, what does that mean? Uh, the general feeling is there will be an extension because numbers have been going up. I'm just hoping the city sees that the numbers are going up, even though the restaurants have been closed now for over 10 days. So it's not directly driven by the restaurants. If anything, mm-hmm. we were the most careful because we were so well regulated and managed and controlled but you know we go with what the city orders and we've done that i just really hope does not extend much longer because 
Well, as it is today, not to mention, I know three restaurants that shut down their doors today, finally. Um, I know from a couple of landlords who've called and said, you know, they're gone. So it is very sad. And the the effect of what's happening now is going to come in the next month, two and three. Some people are still hanging on. But I know for a fact, a lot of them are barely hanging on, hoping to get in a Christmas, New Year's. But you will see some massive shutdown come January 1st. Massive shutdowns in the city will happen based on my knowledge and my experience and my connection to landlords and other people in the industry. Yeah, I mean, certainly even Halloween, one of the biggest weekends, and it's on a Saturday this year. It is an enormous night for bar traffic. That is all all going to be lost. At least, hopefully, you'll be able to get this place uh, filled up with a lot of fun. But um, do you get the sense that that the Premier and uh, Mayor Tory are are listening and at least understand that they either have to do a targeted response and that these mass shutdowns on one particular industry is just not the answer? Listen, I have a lot of respect for the stress they're going under. I can just imagine the pressure and the stress they're under. And they've both done an amazing job and I have a lot of respect for them. But yes, neither one of them have opened or ran or managed a restaurant. So it's difficult for them to understand the tough times we're going through and the, yeah. you know, the, the kind of stress that is, uh, we're dealing with. And just like you mentioned, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is they gave us eight hours to shut down. So everybody had ordered all this perishable food uh, for the long weekend, and uh, they didn't give us enough time. Uh, I at least, you know, give us three, four do- days notice so we manage our inventory properly. Unfortunately, I, you know, I know ourselves, my company, probably 150, 200,000 perishables uh, uh, throughout the whole company. So we're all feeling it. We're all feeling it in a big way. All right. So tell me more about the marquee. Um, It it is open. And and when can people get tickets? How do they get down there if they want to go? Marquee is really a a, a restaurant inside of a tent that's uh, been designed and and dealt with uh, so that it conforms with all the regulations of the city. It's open as of this Saturday. We're almost sold out this Saturday with two seatings. It's insane. People are just starving to go somewhere and, and be social a little bit. Uh, um, it's open as of this Saturday. It'll be open five days a week from uh, Wednesday through Sunday. Um, we've created a nice big menu with our, you know, our partner, uh, Oliver and Bonaccini. We have some uh, amazing uh, specials for Halloween. Uh, we're trying to just stay as much as possible with something that right. interests people in the city because it seems like mental health is another issue we're all dealing with. And, you know, the amount of people that are struggling, we're just being indoor all the time, especially now yeah. with the weather having changed. You know, yeah. it's, it's a struggle. But this event hopefully will bring some relief to, uh, you know, our staff, uh, customers in the city, you know, allow people to come down, enjoy a couple of hours in a, a happy environment. We'll make sure just, it's happy, it's friendly, and it's good. And just quickly, uh, you have to book tickets. Where? What's the website? It's uh, www.inkentertainment.com, or you can go to marquee.com. So, 
um, for Halloween, we're doing a special uh, two or three nights uh, where it's dinner and show. Of course, the show will be, again, based on what the city permits us to do. So we have quite a bit uh, that's programmed for the next few weeks. Charles, I wish you the very best of luck, and uh, I hope you can uh, get through this. We'll continue chatting, but I thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Thank you. It is called the Marquee, and hey, they are trying. They are working for it, and uh, and all they're asking is that uh, they get a chance. So it is the Marquee, and it is now open for business. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, 6.30 until 10 every night here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.